Good morning, everybody. We, uh, as you can see, it's a fifth service Sunday, and so we're going to be gathering around the Lord's table today, celebrating what he has accomplished for us. Um, uh, and as you can also see, I know what some of you are thinking. Um, when did you break into Scott Lemming's closet and take one of his shirts? Uh, and the truth is, I found an entire continent that dressed like Scott Lemming. Uh, this actually... <laughs> oh, he's not even here today. Uh, surprise, surprise. Anyway, one of the things that was, uh, that was really kind of cool was we get, so we get to Africa, um, and then we're really exhausted. We're in, we're in the, the kind of the area where we were staying for the majority of our time in Tamale, and uh, just taking a bit of a rest, and I, I'm, I'm kind of sharing a room with Ryan Smith, and I wake up. Uh, it's probably about 5.30 in the afternoon, you know. It's like, what would that be? Early morning, I guess, your time. Uh, they're about six hours ahead. Anyway, uh, so I wake up and I go out and uh, Austin, the guy who's taking care of us, says, the tailor is here. Well, of course he is. Why wouldn't the tailor be here? Uh, I usually wake up to that. My wife usually says, hey, will you get up? The tailor is here. And so I go back and say, you need to get Ryan. So we all actually had, they had this cloth there and they took our measurements and um, uh, it, was, it, was, it was really kind of a fun trip. Uh, and I, I got more than just this crazy shirt. Uh, I was really uh, blessed uh, to be a part of a great team, really grateful for Paul Weiss and for uh, Jeremy Redman, one of our elders, uh, Ryan Smith, as well as Ryan Bennett, one of our other pastors here on staff. Um, and we had a chance to go to Ghana, uh, West Africa. Um, and the reason why we went was there's an amazing work that is happening over there. Um, the ministry has been a part of what Sunnybrook has been um, sharing with um, and supporting for a number of years, for as long as I've been here, for the last 12 years at least. We have been helping a, uh, a, a Bible college in the lower part of Accra, which is right on the, the coast, um, uh, the bottom part of Ghana, and they've been raising up leaders, um, and so now it's that next generation. And so we got to work with a young man named Austin, who is from Ghana, and his wife, who's from the States, um, uh, Austin and Amanda, and just their ministry, just it really did, it kind of blew us away. Uh, we were absolutely blown away by uh, their passion and their dedication uh, for church planting. I have some of their, their statistics. I, when I just got back, uh, there was a letter in my mailbox describing what's going on right now. Um, and in the last little while, they've planted five new churches. And so far this year, among the 91 churches that they've had, they've had over 563 baptisms in that region of northern Ghana. And so to see uh, the 27 church leaders and to visit many of their churches was uh, probably one of the highlights of my life. It was just absolutely incredible. Uh, when people ask what it was like, the only phrase that I can think of, Paul, I don't know what you've been telling people, um, I just, it was biblical, um, I, I remember reading and studying when I was in graduate school that there truly are many cultures that um, are, are less removed from the biblical world. And therefore, the gospel, I don't know if it's easier. I also like to point out that people are selfish no matter where you are, um, that people are tempted to bow down and worship things, that people are, uh, are easily kind of entrapped by their culture. So that's not just an American problem. It's a, it's a human condition type problem. And uh, we when we were over there and they would ask us to, what are we, we going to be preaching on today? Um, they would ask us on a pretty regular basis to preach against the worship of idols. Um, so very much within their family ancestry, they, they did that. They worshiped idols. And so it was fun to be, we snuck over into Togo, uh, just which for them was just like we're going across the river. Uh, but we also had a chance to visit Togo and preach the gospel at night. And there was just hundreds of people came out literally out of the woods and they gathered in a circle and they sang and danced 
like you've never sung and danced before. Um, it was really interesting to see all these tribal rituals, um, as their church leaders would say, have been redeemed for the glory of God. Uh, every city had their, or every kind of a tribe had their own little dance, and, and we could even kind of notice uh, a lot of their dances looked like a lot of the dancing that we do over here. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and each tribe had their own, and they would literally form like this conga line, usually in a circle, and in the middle of their worship service, they would just sing and dance, and it was just uh, such a joy to be with people where some of them, the language didn't match at all. Others actually did know English, but many times we had to work through translators. Paul had a chance to preach Ryan was preaching. It was just so fun to, to share with them Jesus Christ and to see them with great excitement, um, be encouraged in their faith, and at times come to faith. Um, I loved being in Togo at night and preaching. Do you know who made the stars? And do you know who made the trees? And do you know who made this great river? And do you know who made and describe all these things? And then say, and did you know that he took on flesh and he sent his son to die for us and he is the one, and that's why, and, and it was like they were with their eyes, really? <laughs> like God did that for us? It was so exciting. I, I, I literally didn't have to talk about homosexuality for two straight weeks. It was incredible. Um, there were other things that we had to debate and to discuss. We had to figure out whether or not you could eat python. Was that Christian or not? Why would we have a python? You know, that was kind of my question. <laughs> Um, are they so plentiful? Uh, do I need to be knowing something here? Is this a warning? Um, but literally in a Sunday school class, there was this rather heated debate about what kind of foods are clean and unclean. And I'm just like, did I step into the book of Acts? Like, what happened here? Um, and so it was really, but yet so similar to many of the situations and the conversations that we even have today. Um, so I want you to know uh, that there are um, 91 churches that are thriving in the northern part of Ghana as well as Togo, and uh, it is an incredible opportunity. We are going to be going back, we think, on a relatively regular basis because of the amazing work that is happening in Ghana. Um, everywhere they go, they're making a difference in people's lives um, and uh, bringing the gospel. And to see brothers and sisters in Christ that I didn't know existed but now know exist, even though I kind of knew they were there, uh, to have real faces um, one, let me just end, end this time and before I jump into my sermon, I could talk all day about the, our trip, but um, it was overwhelming. The first place that we went to as we were visiting these churches um, was up in northern, uh, the northern area where it's called, where the kind of the main church is called, is the Bongo Christian Church. <laughs> and they meet under a tree. And so we went up and I, I had an opportunity to preach from Colossians about Jesus Christ being far superior. It's actually from that text in 15 through 20 and uh, describing how great Jesus Christ is. And the church leader for that actually oversees six churches. Uh, he's been blind since he was about eight years old and came to Christ because of his blindness. Very grateful for the fact that he went blind because if it wasn't for his blindness, he would never be able to see who Jesus is. And every Sunday, he gets on the back of a motorcycle and visits six different churches where he is their pastor. Um, and his name is James. And it was an honor to be James II, and this older gentleman being James I. And I just looked into his eyes and just thought, wow, to, to have faith like this. So to meet this brother in Christ 
was, uh, was one of the greatest privileges I've ever had in my life. And to see men and women um, coming to faith, as you know, uh, I got a young man that lives with us uh, right now who is Muslim, and to meet other Muslims who have come to Christ over there and how I can use that as a testimony to just the great power of Jesus Christ is, is, is wonderful. So I want to pray for, for them, for, uh, for Northern Ghana and for all of those churches. Um, and I'm sure you'll be hearing uh, different stories from myself and the others that were on the trip. And I, I'll tell you now, if you have an interest in going over and just seeing some amazing work and meeting some brothers and sisters on this side of eternity, talk to me or Paul or Ryan or Ryan or Jeremy, and we would love to, to just help you get a chance to be a part of that. Let's pray. God, I thank you for our brothers and sisters in another part of the world um, who have already worshiped today. Um, at least most of them, and yet right now, somewhere in Africa, um, Christian and Osmond and Abu and uh, Philip and James are on the backs of motorcycles uh, getting ready to preach to yet another congregation. And Father, I might say they worship in a different way, um, or they gather on the table in a different way, uh, or they dress in a different way, um, but Father, Jesus seems to make all of those things so small. And just the unifying joy of the Spirit, the unifying joy of obedience to you. Um, I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of that. And as a church, Father, um, I believe we are blessed to just know that we're not alone in this crazy world. And that you are doing not just amazing work in a young man who just gave his life to Jesus. Uh, but Father, that continues to go on and on and on. Um, so, Father, I pray that we would have not a worldly perspective in terms of the entire world, but a kingdom perspective on how you are ruling the world. It is in the name of Jesus we trust our brothers and sisters in Ghana. Amen. Turn your attention to the screen and it'll catch us up. Here's what you need to session. know as we continue our story today. At the start of our series, Israel was a growing but oppressed people enslaved under the mighty Egyptian empire. They had no law or land of their own. Then, in his mercy and power, Yahweh delivered them from Pharaoh, bringing them out of the land of Egypt and into the wilderness. Moses was their leader, but Yahweh was their ruler. At Mount Sinai, God gave them the law and entered into a covenant relationship with them. He provided a means for dealing with their sin, and he chose to dwell among them in the tabernacle. Because of their disobedience and rebellion, though, Israel wandered through the wilderness for 40 years before entering the land God had promised to them. God was with them, though, and enabled this young nation of slaves and nomads to conquer larger nations in Canaan. Joshua was their leader, but Yahweh was their ruler. After settling in the land, Israel experienced a period of instability as a fragmented group of tribes in conflict with the surrounding nations and even with each other. During this time, they were ruled over by a series of judges. The last of these was a godly prophet named Samuel. He was their leader. But the question for Israel was, who would be their ruler? King, I mean, if you think about it, all of these are just titles. Does it really matter what they're called? It, it seems to matter to us. We have an absolute fascination with titles. When people ask me uh, what I do, I tell them I'm a minister. Um, and then they ask me where I pastor, and I say at Sunnybrook. And invariably, I get this question, are you the lead pastor? Are you the lead minister? 
Um, I'm not afraid to assume that responsibility. I'm not afraid to lead. Uh, I just find it fascinating that when I say I'm one of the ministers at Sunnybrook Christian Church, they ask, are you the lead minister? Why? Well, because then, you know, we, 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 we understand, we know how valuable and important. And so, yes, I am the lead minister of Sunnybrook. In Africa, they didn't care, right? It's interesting how much we love titles. We love that um, uh, kind of that, that accolade that comes to us. With it comes great power and great strength. It's amazing how in the end, in other instances, I, I think my generation-ish was notorious to realize that maybe this title thing is getting a little bit out of control and, and we began to head in the other direction and we ruined some things. Apologies to everyone else. Um, I, I have a father, which I kind of grew up in a, in a day and in an age, uh, in a family where father was like a noble thing, like a good thing. Um, that my father was somebody who loved and cared for me and protected me. He was someone that I could go to in times of trouble. He was someone who could actually help me in times of trouble. But it was my generation-ish that decided I didn't need a father and I didn't need a mother. What I really needed was a what? A friend. And so my generation-ish decided um, instead of being fathers and mothers, instead of assuming these kinds of titles, what everybody needs is a friend. And actually, I, I'm really grateful for the fact that I, I didn't have a mom and a dad who were my friend. I had lots of friends, actually, um, through just buying people the right gifts. You can get a lot of friends, okay? That was funny. In Africa, they didn't laugh either. Um, uh, I just thought it was them, but it must be you. Uh, <laughs> so as you look at, as you look at um, this situation, what we, we think, oh, every, friends are, are, are the most important thing. And I saw a lot of parents decide, like, I don't want to be the mom. I don't want to be the one who's responsible and has to do all these things and doesn't let their kids do whatever they want. I want to be my daughter's best friend. I want to have that kind of relationship. And dads decided to let go of their incredibly um, rich and important God-designed and directed uh, fatherness with all of its rights, rules, and responsibilities, and they decided to trade that all in to be a friend. And we, we really didn't need friends as much as we needed moms and dads. So titles, we want to be careful into making them into big things, but yet it's also interesting how we seem to let go of all of these things, and it's not surprising then that even when we begin to discuss God, we don't want a creator, sounds too distant, a ruler. How many get excited about God the ruler or even the king? No, we've actually done this with our God. He is our, and, and by the way, what I'm not saying is, is that part of this doesn't describe who he is. It does. There is a part of when we describe God. Jesus himself says, I have come and I want you to recognize that I've come and I call you friend. That's a part of who Jesus is. That's not all that he is, but we take that part and we make it the whole. I think so much of our insecurity begins to bleed out. And we fail to recognize that I don't need Jesus as just a friend. Like there are times in my life where I need Jesus to be king, to be ruler of all, especially as the world seems more dangerous. 
especially as we become more and more unsettled, as Christian people, I think one of the reasons why we fail to put our complete hope and trust in Jesus as um, our Lord and King is because we've traded that into an idea of Jesus that he's there for us in our hard times to comfort us. And yet the Bible also describes him to be there to be our protector, to defend us. And we traded that in for a friend. And I love the multi-dimensional picture of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is loving and caring and authoritative and powerful. He is all of these things. And so today we're here to celebrate what happens when people don't know what they want or want the wrong things and how God lovingly pulls them, God lovingly directs them to himself. Really, God's ultimate intention, although I don't know how excited he was about the title, but really, God was the king. He was the one who made and ruled the world. He was the one that had the right to tell people how to live. God was the one who was the judge. All of these things are kingly ideas. And God is making for himself a people, but I don't know, the idea of being a subject isn't really exciting to me. I would rather be um, a governor or some kind of ruler. I don't know if I really want to be a subject. And that struggle that we have is a, is a universal struggle. But there was a time in Israel's history when they looked at the, the, the magnificence of God as he came down upon Mount Sinai and they were overwhelmed with his presence and they said, yeah, we, we, we want him the one that just came down upon that mountain, we are now ready to follow him. If you have your Bibles, we're gonna be looking at a number of different places today. We're gonna begin in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 33, Moses is retelling the story of Israel's history, and he is pointing out a time when Israel got it right. They didn't always get it right, but for a time, they got it right. They figured out who God was. Maybe it was his presence. Maybe it was just how big he seemed to be and how insignificant they were at that particular moment in time. But when God was speaking from Mount Sinai and he is making a covenant relationship with him, it's like one of those moments in, in time and in life where, where maybe it was just perfectly all set up, but this, it seemed like the most natural response for the people is, yes, we want this. And Moses is retelling that story. Deuteronomy 33, verses two through five, it says this. The Lord, that's his name there, Yahweh, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us and he shone forth from Mount Paran. He came, from to the t he came from the 10,000 of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Again, a picture of God that it shows his, his splendor and his strength. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand. So they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a, as a possession for the assembly of Jacob. So they're just describing in poetic form, God appears and he makes a covenant relationship with them, promising to be their God or their king, their right ruler. And the people, when they were given the law, we, we studied this uh, in, in the books of... Uh, it was Exodus, Exodus 19. We looked at this in Exodus 19 and 20 at this encounter. The people said, yes, we want this. We want this. 
Look at verse 5. Thus the Lord, there's his name again, Yahweh, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. Now where's that? That's not a place, actually. It's, it's a word that appears four times in the Old Testament, and it is a word that describes in the poetic books the people of Israel. It means God's right hand, God's righteousness, describing his people. Thus the Lord becomes king, not of a place, but of a people. Why does God not just describe as king of a particular place? In part, because it's all his. What God desires is, is not more land. He could make that. But God desires to rule in the hearts and the lives of his creation. Those who have been made in his image. Those who have rebelled against him. And those that God is now pursuing to redeem and to restore. And God at Mount Sinai, when the covenant was given and the people agreed to that covenant, at that moment, God, Yahweh God, became king in his people when the heads of the people were gathered and all the tribes of Israel were together. And you'd think, well, that's that moment where it's just awesome and everything's gonna go well from here, but it doesn't. And by the way, this is a good thing. It's good for us to just get used to the fact and not, not just slip into, I know it's always going to go from, from okay to bad or from good to okay to bad. It's, it's looking at the, the Bible in terms of its entire plan for us. Do you realize how much of the Bible is described as God being in control of every circumstance? There's nothing wrong when it's your wedding day and you're excited and even though you know like maybe down the road in a few years we might have a disagreement, it's probably not the best thing to do to think about it on your wedding day. There's other things. And the people of Israel are at that kind of that crowning moment and they are just excited but they can't see how short-lived their joy and obedience to God is going to be. But God does. God sees, God knows. And God doesn't get, I love this about God, he doesn't get too excited when we're doing well and he doesn't get all depressed when we're doing poorly. Why? Because God in his sovereign love and care and in his, in his own nature knows all of these things and so he's working through our greatest successes and our greatest failures. He is the God who is always there. And so we see in the book of Deuteronomy, and God does this a lot, like a gracious parent, like a gracious, loving, yet also firm and strict and a, a father to us, okay? This loving mother to us. God is this incredible picture of someone who knows and therefore at times, are you ready for this? Concedes. Do you know that God many times goes, Okay, I will work with that. Now, by the way, that never puts us in control. It never puts us in charge. But numerous times throughout the Bible, God concedes, not against his will, not outside of his providential plan, but within it. God knows, yeah, Israel, they want me to be king. Yeah, 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 I know, they're all excited today. But the real truth is, I, I, I know down the road, I know their hearts, like, I, I know that, that they're all excited, but in a, in a little while, they're going to want something else. They're going to want something else. I mean, for those of us that kind of go back, do, do you remember when you first fell in love with the one that you have fallen in love with? And do you remember um, that, that, that desire that you had in you, I will do anything for you? 
I remember when I fell in love with Andrea, and literally, I mean, I'm skipping to, back, that back day we didn't have email, so we had to go to the mailbox, and I remember being excited about going and getting the mail, because I might get a letter from her. I remember can't, sitting by the phone, she's going to call, it's Tuesday, 9 o'clock, I can't wait until she calls, I can't wait till she calls, I can't wait until she calls, okay? Now, right, I go from this, I would do anything for you, to, hey, is there any way you can pick up the kids? Why am I picking up the kids? Why don't you pick up the kids? You're not doing anything today? What happened to I would do anything? 20 years of marriage is what happened. <laughs> Think about it, right? I would do anything for you. Uh, but as time goes on, and, and people around Mount Sinai, God, we will, we will obey you. We will follow you. We will do whatever you want. And God looks at us and says, I know that's what you're saying. I just, I know your heart. I know how fickle you are. I know how short-sighted you are. And yet God, in his sovereign love and care, describes this amazing concession. I want you to back up in the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy 17, God comes down and he speaks to Moses and he prepares Moses as the leader of his people to remind his people about what's going to happen long-term. God loves to give like explanations and warnings well in advance. I love that about him. It, it, it describes or it points to his providential plan and his sovereignty. And in Deuteronomy 17, even though God desires for he himself to be our ruler and he himself to be the one that provides and cares for us, God knows that we would rather have something else. That we would much rather have something else. It's like the story of the little child that says, Mommy and Daddy, I need you to come here right now. I need you to be here. I need you to be here in my room. I'm really, really afraid. And the parent tries to console the child and say, Listen, don't you understand that, that God is with you? And the child says, What? Yes, I know that God is with me. But right now, I need someone with skin on. I need someone with skin on. And God knows that the nation of Israel is going to act in the exact same way. I need something with skin on. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 17, God points this out in advance. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, that's what God does, he gives. Hold on to that. When the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and you dwell in it, and then you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You may indeed set a king over you. That's God's concession. You may indeed set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you. Sorry, Canadians. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire, this is God's warning, this king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. That's the sign of military strength. Since that Yahweh has already said, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself. Listen up, King Solomon. Lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver or gold. God says, hey, I know you want a king, but you need to warn him. You need to make sure, A, he doesn't need a huge military. B, he doesn't need a lot of money. Because this is, he doesn't need a lot of wives. That's how the other kingdoms work. That's not my people. My people have me as their ultimate ruler. He continues on in verse 18. And, speaking of the king, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself. I love that. You have to write it out yourself in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priests. By the way, we have no record of any king doing this. We have a record of a king finding one, but we don't have a record of any king doing it. 
approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh, his God, by keeping all the words of his laws and these statutes and doing them. Why? Because this is what a real ruler, this is the issue, because his heart is the problem. Therefore, he needs to study the law so that his heart may not be lifted up. The word there is to be, to be made proud. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment. I love that, the singularity of that. The commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. God says here to Moses, to the people, you're gonna want a king. But we're going to make you king. I know you say that, but you're going to want a king. And here's what I want to remind you. When you want a king, make sure that he doesn't trust in his strength. Make sure that he doesn't trust in his wealth. And Israel kind of marches on its little merry way, believing that God is the only ruler they need. But through years and years and years of bad um, Bad situations that are happening in the period of the judges when Israel had no king and everybody did whatever they wanted. Finally, the people said, we cannot do this anymore. And their big refusal was, we cannot trust God to provide someone to care for us at that last moment. We really need to take control of this ourselves. Let me say this again, because I think this really affects us. The people of Israel had a real hard time trusting God and believing that God would be there in these two particular ways, in his protection and his provision. Therefore, we need someone with flesh on who will provide like real protection, that like horses and spears and swords and arrows. We need, we need real like walls and fortresses. That's what we need. Because I just don't feel safe with God just ruling over me. Who is going to, I need someone to store up like large amounts of, of, of wheat and large amounts of barley, just food. We need storehouses of food and, and crops that are everywhere. We need to keep building that up because if we don't, who knows when it's going to run out and we've got to store things up because that's just good financial management. That's just good stewardship and we need someone to oversee all of this because how are we going to know what it's going to be like next year? Man, we've changed, haven't we? We want a king. And God says to them, you can have one. You can have one. And now we have that moment in 1 Samuel 8 where the people go to Samuel because his sons are terrible. And they no longer trust God to provide judges at that critical moment. And they say, we want a king over us like all of the other nations. At least then we will know, we'll be able to see with our eyes, we'll be able to kind of sense really down deep that we are safe, that we are provided for, that we are protected. And so they go to Samuel, they say, we want a king. And Samuel is upset about this and he goes to God and God says, let him have one. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter eight and watch this encounter that Samuel and God have together. And again, notice God's amazing concession, concession to us. First Samuel chapter eight, beginning in verses seven through nine, God said, speaking to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. To want a king is to reject God. 
They have rejected me from being king over them according to all the deeds that they have done from the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing now to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn. Again, God is saying, I'm going to give you what you want. Here's something that is really important for us to remember today is that sometimes God looks at the request that we desire and he even says sometimes, yes. I always have to ask the question, if all of my prayers get answered, where does God's kingdom advance? This is why I I wanna ask you, why are you praying for my safe return? Why are you praying for our safe return? Like you do know we're gonna be preaching in Bongo and Togo, You do know we're going to be in Saboba and Garu. You do know we're gonna be talking to people who have never heard about who Jesus Christ is. You do know that they're like eternity stands in the balance. And it's not like God needs us to go over there and to do anything. But do you realize if all you pray for, this is kind of where I'm coming from, all kidding aside for a moment, if all you pray for is my safety, then the kingdom doesn't really go anywhere. And that can't be what we're about. It can't be what we're about. And so God is saying to them, I'm going to give you what you want. But I'm wanting to warn you that when you get it, you're going to be not as happy as you think you're going to be with what you receive. Solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. See, why is it that we take this wonderful God, and we replace him with earthly counterparts. By the way, this is really idolatry. This is idolatry. Had a chance when I was in Ghana, actually, because they really struggle with idols. And so we're training up some pastors, and and here's something that we can actually really line up with. Um, In Africa, and so imagine you're pastoring six congregations that you have to go on by motorcycle, and people are ill on a regular basis. And so the pastors are describing how difficult and complicated it is for all of their people in all of their churches when when any of them get sick. They need the pastor, nobody else, the pastor, not one of the elders. They need the pastor to come and to pray over them. And that's just hard. I mean, what do I, what do I, it can't be six places at once. And then, and I said, okay, I picked up this rock at the, at the conference. I just said, um, what would you call it if I said, I need this rock in order to get to God? I need this rock and I use this rock to get to God. This rock would then be called a what? Say it. It's an idol. Okay, so let, let dumb rock. How about, that I say I need Paul Weiss. I need Paul Weiss to pray over me. I need Paul Weiss to be here so that I can get to God. Then what do we call Paul Weiss? An idol. And the looks on these pastors' faces. See, it's amazing how we can trade one idol for another. Hey, I'm not trying to get any kind of pastor off the hook for genuinely loving and caring for his people, but there is something broke inside of us when God says, let me be over you, let me care for you, let me provide for you, and we go, no, we actually need somebody with skin on. You know, someone more tangible than, think about this, someone more tangible than God. This is my concern that I have as we kind of head into another um, political year. 
The two things that kings were able to provide were protection and stuff, like the provision of things. And what concerns me is that when I hear Christian people describe, just like in Israel, the biggest concerns, watch, listen to what's going on, the biggest concerns right now in this country are protection and provision, right? Safety and economics, nothing's changed. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about or we shouldn't have an opinion about, no, no, no. But where, as followers of God, as followers of Jesus Christ, where does our protection and provision come from? Answer? Okay, four of you thought God. That would be the right answer, by the way. <laughs> our provision and our protection comes from who? It comes from him. I'm not asking you to be responsible and do your part and be actively involved in that, but just remember where it ultimately comes from. That's why we don't lose hope. Because my hope is in him. And he will never fail to protect or provide for me. And so here we have this promise, and I love this reminder. Here's the solemn warning that Samuel gives to the people of Israel. These will be, this is in verse 11, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Remember, God is a giver. Look at this. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself. Instead of God appointing, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and his equipment and his chariots. Verse 13. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cookers and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards and he will give them to his servants he will take a tenth which is a kind of a word that is meant for God by the way he will take a tenth of your grain and all of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to work he will take a tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves anybody want a king not that one and look at verse 18. This is why the solemn warning is needed. And on that day you will cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves. But Yahweh will not answer you in that day. The sovereign and the providential hand of God. We want a king. You can have one. This is what he's going to be like. We don't want one anymore. No, you've already got one. And yet... God in his love and in his providential plan does not surrender us alone to our foolish choice. But God steps in yet once again and provides for us. It's, I love looking at God's determination. Now, again, God is the one who always knows these things. God's the one who's always bringing these things together. But I love the fact that God does not abandon us in our brokenness. But even when we say that we want something and then later on we realize that we don't want it, he brings us through like a father who is disciplining us, but he doesn't leave us in our mess. And I love this. God says, oh, you want someone with skin on, but you need me. And he didn't come to an understanding. It was planned from the very beginning. The truth is we do need someone with skin on. And the truth is we do need God. And therefore, we have Jesus. That's why we have Jesus. 
Jesus is that beautiful picture of God with skin on. But I want you to remember this morning that he comes to us as king. That he is our king. Matthew 2.2, you'll see this verse come up quite a bit over the next few weeks. The wise men walk up to King Herod who made a wonderful fortress called Masada, who rebuilt the temple. He had, he had beautiful palatial places all over Palestine. These wise men walk up to Herod the Great, and they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. I think that's funny, they said. And we saw his star. You know what they mean, right? I mean, we saw the star that signifies the coming of his birth, this amazing thing that happened in the heaven. We saw his star. I wish I could go back and say to these wise men, (laughs) that's funny because it really is his star. Like he's the one who made it. Like, yeah, the baby over there, the baby is the one that went star here. And the baby, by the way, that it, it somehow still, this, I don't understand how all this works, but, but God in his fullness, the one who is, a, the, read Colossians 1, he is one who holds all of these things by his, by his will and purpose. The wise men said, we saw his star. You have no idea how true that statement is. Why? Because he is king. He is worthy of your obedience and your adoration. He is worthy of all of your devotion. He is worthy of your trust in your deepest sense of loss and we need someone to provide for us or your greatest fear. We need someone to protect us. Jesus Christ meets all of those things. He is our king. And sometimes you can get it right and not really get it right. Matthew chapter 27, verses 28 and 29 And they stripped him and they put a scarlet robe on him. They twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and they gave him a reed in his right hand and they they knelt before him and they mocked him. Hail, king of the Jews. They were right. You just can't deny it, can you? Like even in mocking, you cannot deny the fact that Jesus Christ especially in that moment, is demonstrating his power and his authority and his strength. Matthew 27, verse 42, they cry out, he saved others and he cannot save himself. That's not cannot. But as a gracious king, he chooses not. Because he knows the glory that will be set for God as he lays down his life They say, he is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Yeah, like you can be trusted. And Jesus stays on the cross to save us and to claim the rightful place as king. As king. I had a chance while I was in Ghana to meet a a man named Abu, not the monkey, just a guy named Abu, who grew up kind of in an animistic, worshiping idols, and then he taught himself Arabic, and he began to study the Quran and was a Muslim for a long time. And as he would read the Quran, and, and he would also kind of occasionally read the Bible, he, he noticed that Muhammad would say sometimes, I don't know where I'm going. Like, I don't know where I'm going. We just have to trust in the merciful. And he'd say, but every time I would read Jesus, it was like he knew where he was going. 
And not only did he know where he was going, he actually said he was the way. And then, and this is what he said to me, Abu says, and then what do you do with that verse that says, and he quoted Acts 4.12, and there's no other name under heaven by which people must be saved. He said, nobody talks like Jesus. So I quit being a Muslim and I became a follower of Jesus. Like no one talks like him. And you wanna know why? Because no one is king like him. And we are his subjects. Amen? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your provision and your protection, for your lovely guidance and kindness to us. And I pray that God, knowing exactly who you are, we look forward to that day when we will see you again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because Revelation chapter 19, verse 16 actually says this, that when Jesus Christ comes back, we will see as he returns, right, on his thigh, a name that is written, and that name says what? King of kings and Lord of lords. Why don't you stand as we worship him together?